Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, we are uh, continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and uh, we looked last week, we tried to get started on the first three days of creation. Of course, I didn't get very far, and uh, this week we're going to pick that up, and hopefully we can get a little bit further. I'm having a little bit of difficulty here getting myself set up, so (laughs) forgive me for that. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse and in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you, O Lord, that you privilege us to be able to gather together as your people that you've called to yourself in Christ through the perfect work of Christ. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illumine the word to us so that we can understand your word and apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in the past couple of weeks, we've seen how secular man has tried to answer those perennial questions Uh, The most perennial question of all is, why is there something rather than nothing? And of course, we discovered that secular man, secular scientists, secular philosophers, in light of that question, and in light of all their search, they haven't come up with an answer. They still don't know what the answer is, not only to that question, but to the other questions of, who am I? Why am I here? Why is there anything other than nothing? And we discovered that, really, even though they say they don't have an answer, the reality is, is that they actually do understand the reason. We keep coming up against the, against the impenetrable, impenetrable wall of God's revelation. And so as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, that we all know that God exists because God has made his eternal power and his nature known by what has been made. And so man is without excuse. It's not that there isn't enough evidence that God exists. God clearly exists, and we know that he exists by the things that he has made, and the heavens declare his glory. But we suppress what we know is true in creation and in our conscience. We hold it down in unrighteousness because we want to think and live the way we want to think and live. 
That's ultimately the truth. And so we looked at that, and we also looked as we turned our attention to the six days of creation, and we talked about the differing views that are held within Christian circles and within the PCA, and we talked about the acceptable views that can be held, and that the bottom line is, is that there can be differing views on these days. In other words, are these long periods of time? Are these literal 24-hour days or whatever the case might be? The unifying principle that has to be maintained by whatever view you hold to what these days are is that you have to believe that this is God's, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and all of God's word is the very word of God. It is the infallible, inerrant, God-breathed word. And everything we find here in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and elsewhere in scripture is, is history. We have here a historical account of the birth of the cosmos and everything in the cosmos. And you have to believe that Adam and Eve were historical, real people, that they didn't emerge from the primordial slime, but were, as the scriptures clearly teach, created uniquely by God himself in his image. Then I talked about how my, my own view is I hold that these are indeed literal 24-hour days, uh, literal 24-hour periods of time each day. It's a 24-hour solar or, or period of time. By the way, it's very interesting because the differing views that people have, some think, think these are long periods of time. Uh, the genealogical uh, days or, or the geological errors and stuff like that, they say well, these are long overlapping periods of time. <clears throat> it's interesting. I hold it a 24-hour view, but it's interesting that Augustine, Augustine thought that even the 24-hour six-day creation was too long. So he maintained that God created the universe instantaneously and just gives us this sixth day as a pattern to teach us how we're supposed to live now. So that was Augustine's view. But he affirmed his historicity of this. And then we explored modern, and this is the key word, secular science and views that modern secular science has with regard to the origin of life and how that is in deep conflict with what the infallible, inerrant, God-breathed historical account that we find in God's word. They're on a collision course. They are totally opposed and contradict one another. And so we saw this modern secular science, which teaches the view of neo-Darwinian evolution. Now, there's two key words regarding those things that I want us to think about that I didn't have time to really unpack last week. And the first word is that slippery word, evolution. Because as soon as we hear evolution, our mind immediately begins to think of neo-Darwinian evolution, which teaches that, that simple organisms became more complex over a long period of time through a process of random mutations and blind chance. And so you have what we call people the particles evolution. And so you have one kind of thing becoming a totally different kind of thing, what we might call macroevolution. But evolution is also just a word, it just, it just describes change over a period of time. And so we do see change over a period of time within organisms, what we might call microevolution. At this level here in organisms, you find variation, you find adaptation, you find change. But the change only goes so far. What you don't see is macroevolution, one kind of thing becoming a totally different kind of thing. The problem is, is that the examples for evolution, macroevolution that are offered are all examples, by and large, of microevolution, of 
changes variations in kinds of things. But you don't have any, no proof, no evidence whatsoever of this macro type of evolution. So we need to understand how slippery that word is. Then also the word science. Science is another word that we have to kind of get our minds around because when we hear science, the temptation for us, especially in our culture today, is to think of it's the word science has almost become like a, a deified thing. I talked last week about this encounter I had with a person, and she said, well, I, believe, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. And I said, well, great. I believe in science, too. Let me tell you how I can account for science. The word science simply means knowledge. And the problem in our culture is that today is that we think that science is never changing. But science is constantly changing. And we think that science means objective truth. And that those who, who call themselves scientists in their white lab coats, well, they're objectively examining the evidence. But that's not true either, as we talked about last week, because we all have a worldview, prior beliefs, through which we are interpreting all of the evidence and the facts that we see in creation are being interpreted through the lenses of our prior beliefs. And in modern secular science, the precondition that through which, the worldview through which everything is examined, is the presupposition that we call materialism. That is, the material world is all that there is. Naturalism. That's all that there is. And so every piece of evidence that is examined is examined through the lens of materialism. The famous uh, astronomer who's, who's now deceased, Carl Sagan, famously put it this way, the cosmos is all that there is or ever will be. Well, that doesn't sound like a very scientific statement, does it? How does he know that? Has he examined every nook and cr uh, corner of the universe? No, he doesn't know, but he makes that statement because he's coming from the presupposition that matter is all that there is, even though he's using a mind to be able to make that statement, which that's kind of hard to square if you're just matter. And so we also see in modern science, it reveals an arrogance that you find in modern secular science, an arrogance that accompanies modern science that dismisses any view that conflicts with materialism. So if you dare raise a voice and say, well, I see things here, and I see information. I see things that display an incredible degree of complexity, and the only way you can account for those things is through, is through mind. To even say something like that, that challenges the, the fundamental preconditions of, of naturalism, of materialism, of, of modern science, will get you ostracized. Many modern scientists have raised questions about these things and have experienced that very thing, have been lost their jobs. By the way, we can also see where not only do you have these things about objectivity, but also, in case you didn't know, science is also politicized. And so you think about these different things that are going on, whether, whether it's climate change or whether it's whatever thing you want to talk about, and scientists are doing the science, well, they're being funded by the government or whatever agency, and they're being funded in order to, to come up with the conclusion that the preset conclusion, it's climate change due to man-made factors, correct? Yes, what a surprise. We discovered that that's what it is. 
the situation, and that is far more complex. So there's a politicization of science as well that's, that's really troubling. We see it today, and I don't want to get controversial here, but you know me. <laughs> Even with COVID, we see controversial things regarding science. This whole idea, though, that you cannot, to science, it creates this thing, we're, we are the purveyor, we have the truth. And the truth is materialistic, naturalistic, there is no God, you have to listen to us, we are the purveyors of truth, we have, the, we have examined things objectively, and so you now have to listen to us, and if you disagree, then you're not very smart. Well, David Berlinski, if you're familiar with David Berlinski, this is an incredibly smart man. Matter of fact, I would say he's my favorite non-Christian intellectual. If you want to hear somebody, you've got to listen to David Berlinski. Bolinsky is an agnostic philosopher, mathematician, molecular biologist. And here's what he said. I have the quote here on the screen. In his book, The Devil's Delusion, he says, has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it's here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. And by the way, this was the, the fine-tuning argument was the one that Christopher Hitchens, the eminent atheist who's now deceased, he found that to be one of the most compelling evidences for the fact that there must be a God. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long it is not a religious thought? Close enough. Great example of this, if you just listen to Richard Dawkins, he was so opposed to intelligent design, but then he talked about, well, if we're talking about aliens who spawn an intelligence that spawned life here on Earth, I could maybe buy into that, but not into a creator God. <laughs> Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark, because that's what happens, right? If you believe in God, that's irrational. You can't believe in science if you believe in God. You say, no, no. I'll have more to say about that a little bit later. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. In other words, modern secular science, with its prior commitment to atheism, can't provide a rational account for anything observed in the sciences, let alone the preconditions that make scientific inquiry even possible, such as the laws of logic, the laws of rationality, the laws of nature. Yet they arrogantly look down upon those who dare question their assumptions or even suggest intelligent design. Well, here's the fact. The fact is is that the universe reveals eyes wide open, intelligent design, because the one true, eternal, living God has created all things, heaven and earth, for his glory, precisely how he wants and the way that he wants, what he wants. And again, it's all to his glory. And that takes us now to the exposition of these days of creation 
And we see here in these days of creation, we see really, I think, an incredible symphony, if you will. There's all kinds of different images we can use for this, the artist with, his, with painting and the sculptor, whatever, but I, there's also this symphony. We're going to see how things are going to move from the first day all the way to the sixth day with the creation of man as being the climax in the symphony here. And that's what we're going to, we see here. We're going to look, the, first of all, though, the first three days of creation, which gives form. God is going to give form to creation and then the last three days of creation, he's going to fill it. And so the main idea we're looking at here is, again, we must worship the, tri the triune God alone because he is the creator of all things. And so the first point we want to look at here is simply day one. Day one, God creates the heavens and earth and light. And so having created the canvas of the heavens and the earth, the, sh the attention now shifts specifically to the earth itself. And there's four things to see here in verse 2. When you see verse 2, first of all, it says that the earth was without form. It's kind of hard to get your mind about what does something without form look like. But the idea here, I think, with the word form, it can entail that. But I think the idea here is, is chaos and disorder. And then secondly, it says that the earth was void. That is, it's empty. It's barren. It's incapable of producing or sustaining life. And then the text says that, the, that there was darkness on the face of the deep. So we've got to try to, you know, it's really hard to, to picture these things because we have, this is all we know. But here we're trying to picture here the earth here. All we see is, earth, is water on the earth and it's pitch black. There's no light. And so we put all this together. The picture we have here is that the earth was an empty, uninhabitable place of disordered chaos and darkness. That's what we have here. And then four, we see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's an amazing scene. Here's the creation. He creates the heavens and the earth. Here's the earth. It's formed without void. It's a barren wasteland. And now the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. But now we've got to deal with this word, the Spirit of God. And I think here it's, it means the Holy Spirit. And again, we see, as we talked about before, that there's one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this word here for spirit in Hebrew is the word ruach, and it can mean breath, and it can mean wind. And so metaphorically, the spirit is often described as the, as the breath of God. And the wind is also often associated with the Spirit's movement and power. You see this in various places in the Scriptures. I love what J.I. Packer says here on this quote. Packer says, the picture then of the Spirit is, as he says, is, is energy let loose of executive force invading. In short, the Spirit is God, is God active as creator, controller, revealer, quickener, and enabler, right? Boy, there's so much to get our minds around here. Isn't it glorious? And so the Holy Spirit is the one through whom God's creative power and energy will be expressed in creation. And the text says that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. Now, this word hovering, the idea, the picture is of a, of a like an eagle hovering over its nest. 
And we see this picture explicitly in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 10 through 12, where we have the text here where God speaks of how his people Israel, they're in the wilderness. And then this is what it says. They were in a barren and howling waste, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. So the Lord alone did lead them, and there was no strange God with him. Very interesting. Now, keep in mind who's writing that in Deuteronomy and who's writing Genesis. It's Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so here we see, I think, a very clear connection. It's an image that he's giving the people of Israel, but he's drawing upon creation. And so just as Israel was in a barren waste, so the creation at this point is a barren wasteland. And just as God, like, like a mother eagle, hovered over his children, Israel, and carried them aloft, so God hovers over creation in its infancy to bring it aloft by the very power, the sheer power of who he is. And just as it was God alone who led Israel out of the barren wasteland, so it is God alone who leads forth creation, bringing order out of chaos. No other gods and no other means such as evolutionary means. Time plus random processes plus chance. God alone does this. And so we have here with the spirit hovering over the waters a sense of expectation. It's getting ready to happen. The, 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 the orchestra, you hear the, the instruments are starting to, to, to play. And now we see here here it comes, the Grand Symphony is getting ready to start, it's about to commence, and here we have the conductor speaks. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. There could not not be light. Let there be light. And the light here we see comes before creation, of the creation of the stars, it comes before the creation of the sun and the moon. So the idea is that light isn't dependent upon any physical object that we see, but upon God himself. God, who is by very nature light here, creates light in the universe, and light is absolutely dependent upon him, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. And what we find interesting here is that in Genesis 1, we see that the creation starts with the creation of light before the creation of sun, moon, and stars. And in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, the very last chapter, chapter 22, speaks of how the sun, moon, and stars, and even darkness itself will not be there. The only light will be the light that is from the Lord himself. And then we see this emphasis on speaking. He spoke. And light... And we see here, we saw the first person that we could, we could say in the creation account in verse 1. In the beginning, God. Very often we see God, that's referring to the Father. And then we see here in verse 2, the Spirit of God. But then the speaking now, the third person of the Trinity comes into view. We see here in, in John chapter 1, we have on the slide here, John says, in the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, the Word was with God. The Word 
was God. Listen, all things were made through him. Made through Jesus. And in him, Jesus was life. In the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Why? Because he is the almighty creator. So we see here that creation is, just like redemption, is a Trinitarian work. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as we theologians say, when you, when you contemplate one person of the Trinity, you contemplate all of them. They're all working together. They have distinct roles and functions, but they're working together here in creation. We see that the Father creates, we could say, the Father creates through the Word, that is the Son, by the dynamic, creative, energizing power of the Holy Spirit. And that is true physically and spiritually. How does a person come to saving faith in Christ? It is through the energizing, life-giving Spirit who raises the spiritual dead to spiritual life. And then we see he separates light from darkness. He calls the light day. He names the light day. He calls the dark night. He names it dark. And we see it's evening and morning the first day. This brings us back to the discussion. Well, are these long periods of time? Is this a 24-hour period of time? What exactly is in view here? And I think one way to think about this here, from my perspective, that I believe these are 24-hour periods of time. First of all, you see the repetition, evening and morning, whatever day. But here, think, I think of it this way, is the creation of light and the separation of light and darkness, evening, morning. The way I thought of it is you could think of it as God here creates the clock. And then maybe we could call the sun, moon, and stars the hands of the clock. But remember, God is creating the environment where the pinnacle of his creation, man, is going to dwell. Man is in view. And so it stands to reason that God is going to create in a pattern consistent with that and in in the the way that man is going to live in this creation in a 24-hour period of time, evening and morning. Now, there's a couple applications here that we can make, very important application. First of all, from the very beginning, God set a contrast here between light and darkness, right? Now, we know at this point, the darkness isn't evil. It's not bad. And, and darkness will, will become a metaphor, though, for evil, for that which is bad. And the scriptures speak of salvation as deliverance from darkness, the deliverance of dark, the darkness of sin and death and Satan. And so when Jesus... On the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, as we saw on Good Friday, we saw the gospel say that darkness came over the land at noon for three full hours, an unexplainable darkness, a supernatural darkness, a God-ordained darkness. Why? Because on the cross, we recall the words that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus is cut off from the the glorious presence of the Father as touching his human nature because he's there as our representative, as our substitute. He is bearing the outer darkness that our sin deserved on the cross. The light of the world is consumed by the darkness of sin and the wrath of God so that we could experience his salvation. 
And now we see the Holy Spirit does what? He broods over us. He hovers over us. You're walking along, minding your own business. The Holy Spirit, though, is about to do something. He's about to speak. He's about to bring light into your darkness. And that's how you and I get saved. I love what the Apostle Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, that is exactly what happened to us. That's what happened to you. You were dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. But guess what? God, the Holy Spirit, spoke and light came into us. He raised us up from our darkness. He brought us to spiritual life. And when God spoke, can anybody stop God from speaking? And when he speaks, will that thing not come to pass? It must needs come to pass. Why? Because he is the all-powerful, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And when he determines to save somebody, when he determines to raise a spiritually dead person to spiritual life, there's no power in heaven or in hell or on earth that can stop him. And that's how each and every person here who is saved got saved. He makes us willing in the day of his power. Praise the Lord. Amen? I mean, hallelujah. Well, we could be shouting all day about that. You know me. <laughs> and then what happens is he makes us into, new, into a new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. So you see this whole picture of creation and salvation, how it all comes together. That's day one. Day two, God creates the sky and the atmosphere. Verses 6 through 8 says, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. There was evening, there was morning, the second day. Now, as you hear that, if you're like me, you're probably like, I'm confused. <laughs> what is he talking about? Right? And again, we've got to remember where we are here. We're th this side of creation and pre-fall creation. This is like the very genesis, if you will, of the creation account. So we're trying to get our minds on what exactly is going on here. And the description here, some commentators tell us, that it sounds like he's describing a dome. And some speculate that this is a canopy of vapor that would pr produce a greenhouse effect upon the earth, which made conditions pristine. And so you see, pre-fall creation, you see uh, situations pristine. You see people living hundreds of years. And then after the fall, what do you see? Very sharp decline. Very different world. The problem with the canopy theory, though, is that it's, it's got all kinds of scientific problems. So we don't exactly know what this is. We can say that the conditions on Earth were pristine before the fall. We do know that. What exactly is going on here? We have to confess we don't know exactly. And it's the best solution is to recall that this is written from the vantage point of how things appear on earth to human beings. It appears as some kind of canopy or a dome. But it's, maybe it's vapor. We don't know. And so it seems best to conclude, I think, the safest conclusion here 
is that God here is creating the sky, or as the text says, heaven. By the way, before God creates here, he creates the angels as well. Or he doesn't, he, before God creates here, it's just God. And then it, here, we believe the angels are created at some point here in the creation account. We don't know exactly when. Maybe it was at this point. Maybe it was at the very, in verse 1, we're not sure. But here it appears God is creating the sky, the atmosphere, the sources of weather, and what would be precipitation. And again, we see the key word here is separate. And so creation here we see, all of this is child's play for God. I'm going to take this over here. I'm going to separate that over there. The water's up here and the water's down here. You know, you ever, he's, he's doing all this through the sheer command, the power of his command. And remember, we talked about how a lot of what's going on here in Genesis is a polemic against the uh, false religions that were surrounding Israel. And so here... In the ancient Near East, in their myths, they have this, these things where gods did battle with each other. But here, what does God do? The true God, what does he do? In the historical account, what does he do? He speaks, and it comes to pass. And the gods of sky and atmosphere and weather, rain, wind, whatever else, are, you're nothing. <laughs> They're like dismissed. Like, yeah, whatever. They're nothing in his hands. That's day two. Day three, God creates land, seas, and plant life. Verses 9 through 13, we see that the waters are gathered into one place, creating seas. The dry land appears. It's very interesting. The, the dry land appears. And it appears that this is just one landmass, one supercontinent. And that's interesting because modern secular geologists talk about this idea, it's called Pangaea, this one supercontinent that eventually it broke up into different what we have today. And so again, maybe that's true in a pre-fall world. Maybe it's just one landmass. That kind of, that, we have no problem with that. Don't know for sure, but this seems to teach this. And of course, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, after Noah's flood, we read that in the days of Peleg, that the earth was divided. Very interesting. The key word that we want to focus on here is the word kinds. This word kind is going to appear ten times. Sounds like the Lord is making a point. <laughs> ten times. And again, it goes back to this idea of what do you mean by evolution, right? We believe that you can have variation within kinds. And it seems very, like the, the scriptures have already anticipated what modern biologists were going to discover all along, that there's kinds and there's variation within the kinds. But one kind never becomes a whole different kind by itself, ever. It doesn't do that. So we see these kinds. And here, this is what we observe in nature. And here the focus is on vegetation, plants, and trees. So now understand this. This was written, I don't know, 4,500 years ago, whatever it was. It was written 1,400 years before Christ. And here, what the writer says is true, obviously. But in terms of people who say, well, what's, what's, there's this conflict between God and science. No, there's not. Perfect consistency. You see, it's not God or science. It's God there for science. You can't do science unless God exists. 
I could go on and on about the reasons why that's true. And that's why modern science was born out of a Christian worldview. Did you know that? Johannes Kepler, founder of physical astronomy who discovered the laws of planetary motion, believed that since God designed the universe, that the laws of the universe must, must follow a logical pattern exactly as they do, because that's the exact opposite thing that you would anticipate if the universe wasn't designed. If it was just random processes. And he said that the task of the scientist was to think God's thoughts after him. That's the task. Why? Because you live in God's world and you're trying to examine nature, examine God's world. This is his world. You might want to think, find out who's the designer. I want to figure out how this car is built. Let me go, who designed it? Let me pick up the, the, the manual and figure, figure it out. Think his thoughts after him. That's what we need to do in our scientific explorations and observations. I love what he says here. We have a quote. He says, since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it befits, it befits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather above all else, of the glory of God. And that statement applies to every single person in this room. His particular gifting and field of study was astronomy. All of us have gifts. We all work in a different place. We want to do all those things, like Kepler says here, I want to do it for the glory of God. I want to think the Creator's thoughts after him, and then whatever field I'm in, whatever I'm doing, I want to do it for his glory. And notice the Lord commands them to sprout, their vegetation to sprout. And they do. <laughs> they must, because God commanded. And I think we can infer here, because then people say, well, then this must imply Thousands of, you know, not 24-hour period of time, hundreds of years, thousands of years, maybe, you know. But I don't think that's, you don't have to presuppose that. You can just infer that God created plant life fully formed, and the command here is with reference to what they will do going forward. Evening and morning, third day. And again, we see a spiritual principle that will emerge. After the fall of man into sin, the Lord promises in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And then going forward, you're going to see two seeds emerge. The seed of Cain, the ungodly seed spiritually, and then the spiritual seed of Seth. And that goes all the way down through history until the seed, Christ, comes. Interesting how even here, just you had just a glimpse of it here. And, of course, that seed would come as the second Adam. Mankind, the kind, mankind is divided into two groups, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And Christ has come as the second Adam to succeed with the first Adam and where we failed. He obeyed God's law perfectly. Then he pays the penalty due to us for our sin on the cross and rises from the dead so that we could have life and now be counted as his seed spiritual seed that keeps multiplying as the kingdom goes forth by the power of the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? So the first three days we see the almighty creator bringing form to the universe. With the sheer power of his command, he effortlessly gives form to the universe and brings order out of chaos. 
And next week, we're going to look at how God fills the earth. This takes us to the fourth point. What do the days of creation reveal about God? First of all, God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. As we sang and we saw in our call to worship, I love that song, by the way, Dave Sullivan. Thank you, brother, for that song. But Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. No beginning, no end. And this is why the question, where did God come from and who made God, is irrelevant. Who made God? Nobody. Because he's eternal. And everybody that believes something's eternal. Something has always been. How do you know that? Because something is now. And you can't get something from nothing. That's a scientific principle that will always stand, despite what physicist Lawrence Krauss tries to say. You can't get something from nothing. So something has always been. The thing that has always been is the eternal God. No beginning, no end. So how does time relate to God? Well, he transcends time in what we might call an eternal present. Everything is eternally present to him. There's not a succession of moments in God. This is why his divine name is so significant. You recall in Genesis, or Exodus chapter 3, Moses appears before the burning bush. Who should I say sent me? And what's the, the voice reply, the name that comes back? I am. You see, we, the name is interesting because it's just pure being, independence, self-existence is what the name has that in view. And for us, it's, you know, God is timeless. But for us, we can't say I am in that sense because we're always in a process state of becoming because we're time bound. God's not. He simply is I am, pure, perfect being. I am. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> and then we see God's sovereign power. Through the creation narrative, we see God simply speaking, and what he speaks must come into existence. It is he alone who is acting here. God created, God made, God separated, God called, God blessed. God said, and it was so, and it was good. Whatever God decrees happens, whether galaxies, stars, planets, molecules, atoms, protons, electrons, molecules, complex cells, or the things we can see with the naked eye, the glorious mountaintops, the flowing rivers, the beautiful valleys, the beautiful roses. And then as we'll see next week, the animals and the insects and man himself all issuing forth from the command of God. And he continues to uphold his creation. Hebrews 1 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The reason we're not disintegrated right now, the reason the law of gravity remains in place is because God is the one, by the word of his power, who causes it to remain just as it is. And the uniformity in nature is sustained by the sovereign, all-powerful God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we see that he brings order out of chaos. The one by whom and through whom and for whom are all things who dwelled in blinding, unapproachable light, created light. And the light of the world became flesh. He became a time-bound human being without ceasing to be eternal God. 
He stooped to the lowest depths of darkness on the cross to rescue you and to rescue me from the chaotic wasteland of sin and death and the darkness of our hearts to fill us with the light of his presence. So as I bring this to a close, have you bowed the knee to this amazing creator who's created everything you see, sustains everything you see, and created you, gives you the very breath that you breathe, fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what God says about you. So if you've never turned to him in faith and repentance, I plead with you today to do that. Stop suppressing the truth. Flee to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, who bore your sin on the cross and rose from the dead to give you life. How do I do that? Turn and trust. Trust in Christ. And for those of us who are believers, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Where? In the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you because you are, I mean, to say awesome, it doesn't even come close, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your mighty works in creation and in redemption. Help us, Lord, to worship you and to serve you, to not walk in darkness as those that you set free from darkness. You've made us your children of light, so help us, Lord, to be, to be lights in this world, to show forth who you are, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.